We are back to Romans now for about 12 weeks or so. This is our third Romans series as we break Romans up into smaller series. We're really into the heart of Romans now as we embark on chapters 6 through 8. Today, the text Gail just read for us, Romans 6, verses 1 through 8. Next week, we'll pick back up at verse 7, so this will overlap a little bit with next week. Uh, Go all the way through verse 14 next time. As you're looking at at verses 1 through 8, there's a theologian named Anthony Hokema, and he he wrote this, and I think this is a a good synopsis of what chapter 6 is about. His words, quote, Many of us tend to look only at our depravity and not at our renewal. We've been writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters and our newness in Christ in small letters. We believe in our depravity so strongly we think we have to practice it while we hardly dare to believe in our newness. It's really spot on. And again, I quote this to summarize chapter 6 nicely. Let me read his words again. Many of us tend to look only at our depravity. Depravity is another word for sinfulness. We tend to look only at our sinfulness and not at our renewal. We've been writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters and our newness in Christ in small letters. We believe in our depravity so strongly, we think we have to practice it while we hardly dare to believe in our newness. Now, the only thing I would add to Hokema there is that we have to practice our newness as well. He's not saying we don't. It's implied within what he's saying. But here in chapter 6, Paul will have us dare to believe in our newness. Next week, we move on in the passage all the way to verse 14. We'll begin to talk about practicing our newness, which is also essential. It's essential because belief by itself does not change us. And this is what we'll talk about as we go on through to chapter 8 from Romans 6 through 8. We are not changed merely by believing. We have to develop our believing through practices, and I will refer to these as cruciformed practices. That is, our belief is fundamentally shaped by the cross where sin was put to death, Sin being our human propensity to mess things up. One of the best definitions I've ever found on sin is that. It's the human propensity to mess things up. We spent a lot of time talking about sin in Romans chapters 1 through 3 back earlier this year in the winter. We talked in Romans 1 through 3 what sin is. It's our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness both. Directed at God, directed at ourselves, directed at others. We talked back then that sin is personal, but it's not just individual. That is to say, sin embeds into social structures and cultural patterns and institutions. But sin is personal. And here in Romans 6, the personal is in view, as well as the the power of sin. We get to that in chapter 7 especially. But each and all of us mess things up. For ourselves and for others, we do this actively, but we're also uh, into this passively as well, the good that we refuse to do that we could do. And if you put, when you're talking about sin, if you put the personal and the power together, you get what Neil Plantinga called the vandalism of shalom. That's his uh, concise capsule definition of sin. And that in a phrase is what sin has done. It has vandalized shalom. What is God's shalom? It is It is human flourishing and wholeness under God. Our sin mars that it defaces it. That's what sin does. It vandalizes shalom. 
I say all that, this is ground already covered in Romans, because I think Hokema's words that I introed this message with, they, they shed light on this passage when he says that we write our continuing sinfulness in capital letters. I, wanna, I want you to fix on, on that image, writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters and our newness in small letters by contrast. There is a way the gospel encourages us to write our continuing sinfulness in capital letters. There's a way the gospel encourages us to do this. And there's another way the gospel opposes. Let me just give you this contrast simply. The way that the gospel encourages us to write our continuing sinfulness in capital letters, that is, as an emphasis. You know, when we write things in all caps, uh, culturally, that's supposed to be yelling, but what Hokema means is that we write our, 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 in all caps, we're, it's like we emphasize this. We, we, we forget about our redemption. We don't believe in our newness. And so the way the gospel actually does encourage us to write our continuing sinfulness in capital letters, we have to go back into chapter 5. So we're just laying some groundwork now for this next section of Romans, chapter 6 through 8. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Toward the end of chapter 5, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul made the argument at the end of chapter 5 there, he'll return to it in chapter 7, that an important function of Old Testament law was what? It was to name sin, to call it what it is. The Old Testament law gives us, if you will, uh, I was just in a science museum earlier this week, so I'm thinking about the periodic element uh, it gives us a, a periodic table of elements, that sin is our element. And so Paul will say in chapter 7, as an example, we'll come to this in a few weeks, he'll say in chapter 7, I wouldn't have known what coveting was except there was a law that defined this for me because the law said don't covet. And so what I had going on in me, which was my natural element, was coveting. Now there's a law that says don't do that. And so now I understand what sin is, the power of sin, and that it's personal to me. The law also tells us, by the way, that God is exceedingly gracious. Grace is not a New Testament invention. We see even back in the law the liberating grace of God. The law begins on a grace note. Exodus 19, verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt on eagles' wings. The next chapter in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1, I, I liberated you from your slavery in the land of slavery. That's a... That's a good cross-reference in that this passage in Romans 6 tells us, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is what grace does. In a word, grace liberates. It's in the Old Testament that it's liberating. It's in the New Testament that grace liberates both places. So when Paul says, Chapter 5, verse 20, again, just laying a groundwork here. When he says in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The way the gospel encourages us to write our continuing sinfulness in capital letters as it is, is knowledge of personal sin... The law encoded, and that's what's meant there by the, the law increased the trespass. Knowledge of personal sin is necessary in order to know what? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. That God's response to sin is sending his dearly loved son to be our sacrifice for sin so that we can be right with him. 
I quoted last week uh, an old, um, well, his life straddled the 16th and 17th centuries. His name was Richard Sibbs. He was an old um, English uh, Anglican. And Sibbs said, there's more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in us. And I love that. I love the word abound back there in chapter 5, verse 20. Grace abounds. That's not an embellished word choice in chapter 5. Paul isn't trying to dress this up. The reality is God is not stingy with his grace. He isn't afraid of giving grace to us. And in these ways, the gospel encourages us, actually encourages us to write our ongoing sinfulness in capital letters. But the gospel also opposes us writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters. And this is the concern of Paul in chapter 6. How the gospel opposes our writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters to use this image. We have to break from sin. Its power over us is broken by Jesus. It is, it, it's control over us. But we have to break from sin. We have to respond this is what chapter 6 is going to unfold for us into chapter 7 and chapter 8. We have to respond to what Jesus has done for us. And this is why the role of practices inspired by grace, shaped by the cross, are so instrumental. We have to learn how to walk in the newness of life Jesus gives us. Look at that phrase again at the end of verse 4, that we too might walk in newness of life. We are Sinners, but we are redeemed sinners. Now, these rhetorical questions, as you're looking at the passage, look, you've got questions in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and they're all rhetorical because they're getting at how the gospel opposes writing our continuing sinfulness in capital letters and our newness in small letters. What we're told in chapter 6 is we've been fully united with Jesus in his death. We've not yet been fully united with him in his resurrection, which is why sin is still a problem for us here and now, but it's no longer a master. We're no longer in its thrall. We're no longer under its control. The best we can say of ourselves right now, the best you can say of yourself right now is you are a redeemed sinner, freed from enslavement to sin, Walking in newness of life because of Jesus' life and death and his accomplishments for us. Eventually, we will walk in the total transformation of ourselves, what we call glorification. This is spoken to at the end of verse 5. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That happens for everyone who dies in Christ or who lived to experience his return. Either way, we will be fully united with him in a resurrection like his, as verse 5 puts it there. But the gospel is also about now. Life in Christ is about life after death. It is. But it's also about dying to live. Dying to ourselves in Christ. The gospel puts redeemed and sinner in the same breath. And that's actually a, a rather dicey thing to do. This creates a tension, a felt tension. Putting redeemed and sinner together Letting redeemed modify sinner, this creates a tension. The thing about tensions is you don't try to resolve them. You live in them. A true tension won't be resolved by you. What you'll do is you'll pick one side over the other, and that leads to over and under emphasis. And so, for instance, if we take the phrase redeemed sinner and we emphasize the sinner part of it more, 
And we'll develop this kind of, uh, it's called a worm theology, where God mostly tolerates us. He redeemed us, but he otherwise can't stand us. Or we'll consider sin as somehow more authentic than our redemption. You know, I appreciate earthiness usually in most people, but worldliness is is an entirely different thing. But then if we emphasize the redeemed part, you take redeemed sinner and you emphasize the redeemed part more and in effect deny the sinner part, then look at verse 6 where you've got this phrase, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Look at verse 7 where we get this phrase, we've been set free from sin. And we'll take that to mean if we emphasize the redeemed part over and against the sinner part, we'll take this to mean we're above temptation. And we will slide into these moralistic behaviors that are all about behavior modification. I'm a Christian because I don't wear that, go there, drink that, speak that way, etc. When none of that is what makes you a Christian. As a redeemed sinner, you cannot outsin abounding grace. But because you are a redeemed sinner, you don't want to feel the tension. The tension comes in daring to believe in our newness and living in the not yet. We have not yet been resurrected. But in Christ, we want to undergo that death before dying that is, as verse 6 puts it now, our old self crucified with him. See that in verse 6? By the way, you would think in a book like Romans, you would have a lot of talk about the cross. Chapter 6, verse 6 is the only reference to the cross, to crucifixion directly in the book of Romans. There's only one. Now, there's a lot of references to the Lord's death and what that death means and all its implications, but the means of that death, crucifixion, is only referenced here in chapter 6, verse 6. Our old self crucified with him, we're going to refer to this throughout our series as cruciformity, our being shaped by the cross. We are, as verse 6 goes on to say, no longer enslaved to sin, this due to our redemption. We are, as verse 7 says, set free from sin. It's penalty, certainly. But also it's power and persuasiveness in and over our person. Now, to what degree we are has been, in practical experience, something Christians have debated and questioned for centuries. But what is not debated is that Christ has power over sin. And that power goes to work in us when he redeems us, but we have to participate. And our participation, we're going to roll out in the sermons that follow. But walking, look at verse 4 again. Walking in newness of life is the call of grace because this is what grace liberates us for, to walk in newness of life. We're going to talk in this series about the experience of cruciformity. I hope it becomes your new favorite word. It's not a word coined from me. I didn't make this word. It's a, it's a word you can find uh, in theological writing. It's been around a long time. Cruciformed, shaped by the cross. Spiritual formation. How do we change? How do we grow? What's central to this is the cross, how the cross shapes our desires, how it organizes our loves, our expectations of life are cruciformed. We're servants. We're children. We're we're. We're friends of the Most High God through the work of His Son on our behalf. So we're going to talk about why grace matters in this, how grace changes us, not just by believing it as a concept, theoretically, but by practicing it, by developing it. Because of grace, 
We dare to believe in our newness and obey from the heart. We'll get to that phrase later. It's in verse 17. I just mentioned it now. It's a key way of putting it. Obedience from the heart. When we get to that in verse 17, obedience from the heart means we obey not for earning or keeping God's acceptance, but because we've already been accepted. Because we're already kept. It's a completely different motivational structure. It's not a motivational structure that, that I was familiar with growing up in church. My default sense was, uh, well, now God has uh, done a great work for me, and now I must show him that I am serious and that I, uh, I, I intend to keep this. And so every flaw, every fault w w was all the more magnified with, with self-condemnation because I, I, was, I was looking to God for this for this salvation that was about getting into heaven and then I was trying my dangdest, that is an Alabama phrase, to work out my salvation, not in the way that Philippians talks about, but in a way that it, it creates all this anxiety and, and this fear that, that's, boy, one of these moments God is going to say, you know what, I am sick of you, I've had it with you, I'm sorry I ever showed you my grace, enough. What do we have in these first eight verses in chapter 6 here this morning? What we're given here is sometimes called propositional truth. If, if you've been listening to me up to this point and you've gone, you've given me nothing to do, it's because the passage is about what's been done for us. And that's the, that's the way the New Testament rolls. That's the way it flows. You often get in the New Testament, the pattern is what's been done for you, which we tend to call positional truth, and then what we do in response, what then gets into practical truth, that's kind of a handy way that, that people talk about this. So what we've got here in these first eight verses, it's not practical in the sense of how to, it's positional in the sense of what is. How to flows from this, it's coming later on in chapter 6 as we go, but here in these first few verses is positional truth. This is what is true of us in Christ. So what is true of us in Christ? What are we told? First part of chapter 6, we're told we have been fully united with Jesus in his death. That every merit, every benefit of that applies to us through our faith, which we talked about in chapters 4 and 5, the necessity of faith. By his grace. And so in this first part of chapter 6, we're told we've been fully united with Jesus in his death, but we have not yet been fully united with him in his resurrection. Now, let's consider these as questions. Just give you two things here, and then we're done. Let's take those two things and look at them in more detail. What does it mean, first, to be fully united with Jesus in his death? And then, what does it mean to not be fully united with him in his resurrection? Not yet. All right? Those two things. First, what does it mean to be fully united with Jesus in his death? Paul uses baptism to present this positional truth to us. Very fitting that we look at it today, having just baptized in the service. One would think this was even planned. But guess what? It wasn't. It's just how it rolled. Providence of God. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So why baptism? Why does he use this picture? Well, think about it. It looks like death when you go under. What would happen if you were left underwater? Any water. 
anywhere. We all know what happens if you're left underwater. Will Campbell may not be a name that you know. Some of you who have an Ole Miss background will remember him. Uh, he was the campus minister there back in the uh, 50s, uh, 60s. Something of a hero of mine in that Will Campbell was, um, well, there's just not a lot of people like Will Campbell in our day where we all live in echo chambers and this group won't talk to that group. And Will Campbell was interesting because he, as a white Baptist minister, he, he stood with the civil rights movement in Mississippi of the 1960s but he also befriended Klansmen. He went out of his way to really offend both <laughs> of the groups, uh, black and white uh, both. He was an equal opportunity offender of all of his friends. And the reason that, that Will Campbell did that and the reason we need more Will Campbells today in our fractured, balkanized world are people who can, who can build bridges with their convictions. The reason he did that is because it, his sense of Jesus was cruciformed. He couldn't say, I mean, he, he did say, I, I stand with, the, with, with those who are advocating for civil rights. This is, a, this is about basic human dignity. Uh, but he couldn't, he couldn't look at the racist and say, well, you don't need the gospel. And so he went to both places with the gospel, and I, I really admire that. But when Will Campbell was young, he was baptized. It was in the East Fork River. If you know your Mississippi uh, geography, that's way down uh, close to the Louisiana line. Liberty, Mississippi is close by there. And his brother Joe attended. But his brother Joe was a skeptic. And after watching two or three others go into the river before it was his brother Will's turn, Joe suddenly got really anxious and he slid down the mud bank and he grabbed his brother and he said, Will, don't let them do this to you. I felt like you get killed doing this kind of thing. Reflecting back on that, Will Campbell later wrote, it took me 30 years to recognize that was precisely the point of it. What Jesus did for us, which we say baptism symbolizes, but really we should say it dramatizes it. What Jesus did for us is applied to us fully, not at our baptism, but the moment of our belief in him. Our baptism is the identification point. It's the proclamation point. It's the drama of, of this is what I've under, undergone inside my, my heart and my life is going to be renovated by him. It's not going to be about behavior modification. It's going to be about the renovation of the Spirit of God inside of me. Baptism happens in a moment, but it takes years to unfold for us to really know what we're in on. Baptism doesn't save us, but it does bury us in a manner of speaking. It buries our identity in Christ. The act of it identifies us forever as having experienced Jesus' death in ourselves in and through our believing on him. It's a transfer of allegiance, really, from me to him. What can take us 30 years and longer to understand and realize even after the fact, is that the old self, as Paul calls it in verse 6, the old self dies hard. That's the learning curve. The old self is what? Back to chapter 5, who I inherited from Adam. I'm a descendant of Adam. That is, I was born into captivity to sin. I made good on that myself. I, I accepted my inheritance and I, and I ran with it. The point of life in Christ is the death of the, of the old self. Now, we've got to understand this old self language. As he puts it in verse 6 there, you see the language in verse 6? The old self. This is not some part of me that's opposed to God. P. 
people get, uh, well, they start deli slicing this out and you know, this part and that part. And it's not about parts. All of me as a descendant of Adam is opposed to God. That's what we learned in Romans 5. It's not a part of me that God redeems. It's all of me. Sin does not belong to a part of me, but the whole of me. There's nothing about me that has not been affected by the vandalism of shalom, God's good design and and intentions for human flourishing and wholeness, this complicated world we share that God remains attentive to. I have participated in the vandalism. I was born into captivity to sin. The only way out of that while I live, and only while I live, there's no chance after I die. The only way out of my death is while I live to die in Christ, which requires I meet him at his cross because the cross is the only thing, the only thing. It's not going to be my willpower, my want to. The cross is the only thing that will change my relationship to sin. The cross is the only thing that will change my regard for sin. Because what happens in sin is that we go looking for things for ourselves. We go looking for things for ourselves in sin that we will not let a Savior provide for us. My sin is what put him there. And he should condemn me for that. But lo and behold, he gives me grace. What a God thing. He wants the excellences of his sacrifice to apply to me fully. That's grace. Listen. If this wasn't grace, I would say to you, uh, you know, God permits the, the, the attendant benefits of his sacrifice to apply to us. But no, permits? As if he's a reluctant savior? He's not a reluctant savior and he's not sorry that he saved you. He wants you and me to experience the excellences of his sacrifice that apply to us fully. My baptism is the moment that I dramatize that his death applied to me. But then it will take years to learn that my dying is the point. Death to self while I live. And this is why, my second point now, we're not yet fully united with Jesus in his resurrection. We live in a now and a not yet. We will be. Look at verse 5, end of verse 5. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the end of verse 5. Look at verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We'll come back to this next week. Why are we fully united with Jesus in his death, but not yet in his resurrection? Why not redeem us and just take us on home? Just take us to be with him. Well, in a word, it's cruciformity. This idea in verse 6 of the, of the old self being crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Being crucified with him is not just about, it is about this, it's not just about this, it, it's not just about his paying my sin debt for me, his taking God's judgment for me in my place so that I can someday be with him in heaven. It is about that, but it's not just about that. My being crucified with Jesus is so I can walk in newness of life here and now. I can enjoy resurrection life 
stirring to life in me that my desires and my loves and, and my objectives, my goals, my passions of life all get ordered around who he is and what he wants, shaped by the cross, by the self-sacrifice and the grace of that act. Baptism is quite literally standing in that knowledge, standing in something, water, that will kill me if I don't come up from it. Someone suggested once we ought to hold people down in the water until they're gasping for air to reinforce the point of the drama. <laughs> in Christ, there's a kind of death to self to undergo. So that his life matters to me enough to where I, I suffer dangers for being called by his name, enough to long for his appearing, enough to practice wakeful attentiveness to him, enough to convey that kind of softness to him where I hate my sin and I want to obey from the heart. Sin doesn't make life interesting. It's, it's what makes life hard for us. It's what makes it so that most every person you meet is in need of more grace than you know. Sin makes us rot and fester in our own shame. Sin uh, is, that, is that thing that gnaws away at us through guilt. What it means for us to not yet undergo his resurrection is that we're getting cruciformed in the here and now. We're experiencing God's desire for us to know his son to be in on how he's reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Our body of sin being brought to nothing. You see that phrase in verse 6? Our body of sin being brought to nothing does not require self-loathing. It requires belonging to Jesus. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead of redeeming us and just taking us out of the world, God puts us into the tension of redeemed sinner. Why? So you get to be part of something bigger than yourself, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you get to write your newness in capital letters. Now, not just when he makes all things new, but now, even on your worst day, even on your worst day, even in your worst moments. I had one Friday. I was driving in downtown St. Louis my family with me. The guy in the car in front of me sat through a green light. I let him. I didn't honk. I figured there was a good reason. I give benefit of the doubt. Try to. There did not appear to be a good reason for him to sit there. There was a piece of construction that was bottlenecking us up at the next intersection over, but uh, he could have gone through the light without blocking the intersection of all. There was plenty of room there. No one was behind us. We weren't in a big hurry, and so... I let it be because I style myself as a humble, patient soul. <laughs> so I stayed put and I waited for the next green light. Well, the next green light comes and for about five seconds, he sat there again. Traffic is now moving. So I figure there's a problem and I go around him. As I did that, he gunned his car up to my bumper, made a gesture over his steering wheel that in most parts of the world is not taken to mean, let's be friends. And now as we're rolling along with his aggression behind me, I'm getting angry. What is this guy's problem? I didn't do anything wrong to him. A place widens for him to pass, and as he does, he shoots me a look, and that's what did it. I did nothing wrong to this guy. 
and I see somebody's in his passenger seat, somebody's in the back seat, looks like his family's with him. As we come up to a safe yelling distance to each other in traffic, another red light, I roll down my window and I signal for him to do the same. Roll it down. Roll it down. Roll it down. Wasn't I just preaching on anger two weeks ago? He rolls down the window, promptly begins to unleash this tirade of names at me, none of them I can repeat, and suddenly I hate this man with everything in me. I want to break every bone in his face. See, sin is comical in its tragic effects. I broke Tim McGraw's humble and kind song. I just broke it. just broke it right there. I, I, I violated being a disciple of Tim's. Needed a popsicle and a root beer. I didn't get it. Need to calm down. Everything wrong with the world was right behind his steering wheel. Going down the road from there for 30 minutes, I was consumed with how I would have loved to have beat that guy senseless. For what? For what? Jawing with him was not my best moment this week. It was stupid on many levels. I had my family in the car. I take the risk in confessing this to you that you'll think me a hothead. In truth, it wasn't like that. I didn't call him any names. I was angry, but I wasn't raging. Uh, in fact, here's how my pride works. I was actually, I wanted to explain to him why I was right to go around him. That's what I was doing. And so I rolled down my window really more out of pride because it became in that moment about you, whoever you are, you don't do me like that, pal. You don't know who I am. I didn't do anything wrong to you, but I sure want to do something wrong to you now. See, nine times out of ten, I'd have let that guy's road rage go on past. Shrug it off, laugh at it even, but Friday, I didn't. And what does that say? It says, I still don't fully believe in my newness because I was looking for something out of jawing with that guy to satisfy my pride and my craving for self-justification. I was looking for something from that angry stranger that I would not go to a gracious Savior for instead. That is sin. This is why we have to be set free from sin. That and a hundred other examples, large and small, petty and severe, we have to be set free from sin because we, the baptized, we go looking in sin. We do it in a heartbeat and we do it with planning a forethought. We go looking in sin for everything we need from a Savior. It's the worst possible trade. We do it in moments. We do it over years. The only thing that will break that cycle in us turn us from looking in sin for what we need from a Savior. The only thing is that we be cruciformed, shaped by the cross. We will never not need this. Having our words and our wants, our identity and our security, all of our loves of life and expectations of life shaped by the cross of Jesus. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to sing, and I'll dismiss this with a benediction. We're about to sing, Lord, that we need you. Every hour, we need you. Every 30 seconds, we need you.
You are our righteousness. You are our goodness. And Lord, when we uh, get downwind of ourselves, in particularly we need to know that, but also in particularly we need to know it when we're succeeding and we think everything is turning up roses for us. Lord, there's not a moment we don't need you. And the beauty of the gospel is, is there's not a moment you don't want us to know that you're for us. At our worst moments, whether they're petty and stupid, whether they're severe and, and consequential to uh, life uh, being changed by them, there's not a moment that goes by that you don't want us to know of your care and your grace to us, that we've experienced something that takes years to unpack and unfold, but we've experienced it, and therein is our hope of resurrection. Lord, help us to understand what being cruciformed is about and what it's not about. Keep us from becoming behavior modificational in this. Keep us from going to one side or the other and not living in the tension. Don't let us give ourselves permission to sin. Don't let us give the devil a place, but also don't let us become self-righteous. Father, that Jesus would be purer and better and sweeter and greater and nobler and truer to us than any other person, place, or thing in this world. Because that is the way to really live. And so we thank you that you make us mindful. Even as you call us from sin, you make us mindful of our need for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.